Fans Labyrinth, the podcast where we discuss your favorite indie flicks and genre movies. I am your host, Lydia, and this is my co-host. Joseph. Hey, hi, how are you? Hola, como estas? <laughs> are we going to do this every time? Is that the, the whole sh- I don't know. I don't know what else to say. You say, hey, hi, how are you? I don't even speak Spanish. Yeah, so. Everyone who speaks other languages. You should oh be doing God. the like multilingual greeting. Leave the English for me. Uh, nine. <laughs> nine, Danka. I don't know why I just checked my phone. This is just millennial culture to a T. Yeah, what is happening? Are you okay? I wanted to say something about the fact that we watched Kid Detective. That was our thing today. But uh, I they don't have a line for it. So that's, that's just coming at you, like, uh, out of nowhere. But that is what we watched for today. It's in the title and whatnot. And we're going to talk about whatever the hell else we feel like at the beginning. So, what's new? What's been going on? What's happening in your life? Uh, I had... I, I, always, I always don't like that we start off just complaining about our work, but it just ends up being the thing to talk about in life all the time. Mm. Well, we're 30. We don't have anything else. <laughs> I had a really uh, bad work week. That was very sad with many people complaining about my work. So far in what I'd been doing freelance writing, I had not gotten any bad feedback. So it was very, very jarring to just have that flipped switch like so hard to go from being basically everyone thinking I'm doing a really good job to having two different people being like, this is completely unacceptable. So. Wow, that kind of ties in pretty nicely with the kid detective today. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe Um, I do. I did resonate (laughs) with the movie. Like, don't get me wrong. But, um, yeah, I, it was not not a great time. I was surprised at sort of the next day. I kind of felt not good, but I was kind of like, you know, it's as a freelancer, you kind of you have lots of different people you're working with. So having one bad client driver doesn't necessarily mean that much. But yeah, freelance writing or just writing in general is like the worst version of customer service. Because you have, like, all the risks of the bad customer service relationship moments, plus all the risks of, like, the bad artist moments. Yeah. When when those two things come together, it can be truly, truly awful and, like, really frustrating. But with writing, I mean, like, with corporate writing especially, um, and, like, marketing writing and stuff like that, you're almost never going to get a cohesive answer about what you should be writing or how long they want you to take. It's always like this vague idea. And then when you give it back to the person who has no marketing experience or no professional writing experience, it's always like, well, this isn't what I wanted at all. Yep. How did you not like read my fucking mind and know exactly what I was asking you for? This is atrocious. And it's like, man, you don't even know what you're talking about. So how, how are you able to judge me here? And I, I talk to, I have a couple of friends that are graphic designers and it's the same thing yes, with them. I've heard that. You know, they pour their heart and soul into doing something 
And it's always going to be like, well, I thought it was going to look more like this. And it's like, well, why didn't you fucking tell me that when we had our entire like quote period? You yeah. had the opportunity to tell me this. I saw a few things like this where the person's like a trick where clients always ask for like three, three different ideas. And the person's like, here's my good idea. And then I make two ones that I don't think they'll pick. And then they always are TikTok? devastated because the client will pick one of the ones they don't like. And they're like, well, yeah. F it. I put all this effort in the one I think. And I also think this is awful. So now and now I have to make it good. And it's like, yeah, yeah. That's tragic. Yeah, and that's always the way. And even when you're even when you're contracted by like say a marketing department and they do really genuinely have a strong understanding of either design or writing or whatever it is you're doing, it's you're always gonna get criticism back. Yes. It's always gonna come back with edits and red lines and they're always gonna want review periods. It's just the nature. Nothing's gonna get accepted first draft. Yeah. And red lines and stuff, I'm very used to that from, you know, getting stuff marked or whatever, but there is this like attitude difference that can be so frustrating. I mean, I never got this exact feedback, but I knew many people in grad school who their professors would just say stuff like, why are you even here? Like, I, I read your paper and I just, it's like, what, like, they're here. So don't write stuff like that. Like, it's just so ridiculous at that point. Because for some reason, there's so many people that think negative reinforcement actually like produces positive results. Yeah. And like, that's sim- it's simply and fundamentally untrue. Shitting on somebody does not make them want to work for you or work harder for you or do better. It makes them dread having to even like look you in the face. So don't don't fucking do it. Don't do it to your employees. Don't do it to your students because you're not fostering better material. You're not like breaking them down and building them back up stronger. You're just going to make them fucking quit. And good for them. They should quit. Uh, yep. I think professors in particular are in a strange thought because they have no incentive for you to do well. They don't care whether you do well or not. No. Um, it doesn't help them in any particular way. Like, Which is bizarre to me. Yeah. It's bizarre to me, though, that so many of these people in the education, like post-secondary education system, are in no way incentivized to improve the lives of the people paying for the education that they're supposed yeah. to be providing. You know what I mean? Like, I know. I'm not saying you have to make give them participation trophies and like make them feel all fuzzy and warm all the time. But like you should have to impart basic fucking knowledge like that. You should be incentivized to ensure that these people can actually pass these courses and get these accreditations. That's what they're paying for. Yeah. What are they paying for? You know what I mean? And we've had this conversation before where you explain this whole system to me and I just fundamentally can't understand the purpose of people going to these schools and paying for these degrees when none of the people that are providing the education are incentivized to actually provide it. The whole structure of it is so complicated. I understand the reasons for a lot of it. Like essentially it comes down to professors are paid for their research first and foremost. And you can question that. You can be like, maybe they should be paid for teaching abilities. But then of course, all, you know, rich people, if Harvard and Yale are getting all the top researchers in every field and they're not they don't hire based on teaching at all. Right. And then the state schools are being like, no, we need to teach the students. We're paying for these people who are not as good as research, but are great at teaching. How is that going to look when someone gets a degree from a state school? Right. It's going to be like, well, those they didn't get under the best people. And I'm saying it is perverse incentives. It is a problem. But you can see from the perspective of the quote unquote customers, the students, why places hire for research. Research is going to look actually prestigious in the long term. Whereas if you hire for teaching, 
you might have lots of students with great great learning experiences, but it's so hard to then convince the world that bringing, you know, paying, you know, a bajillion dollars and going to school is going to get you that prestige. No, and I do understand that. Like it, I mean, like so many other things in our society feels like capitalism, but I do understand that. I understand that it's like this weird elitism, classism thing that's been structured into our post-secondary education systems. My issue here is that you're going to have, like fundamentally by the nature of this, because these professors are not necessarily good teachers, um, and in many cases are not good teachers at all, even though they're incredibly intelligent, incredibly knowledgeable, you have these students that are either failing out when they could have been brilliant or passing by the skin of their fucking teeth and can't actually do the job they have the degree for. Mm -hmm. But now every single career requires you to have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or a PhD to be able to get that job. So it's like you have these people that have no fundamental real world experience, but also have no theoretical or academic experience because they skated by on like barely passing grades. Yeah. We're just like churning out graduates that have to learn on the fly now. And it makes it harder and harder and harder for people in our age range and younger to get these jobs where it's like minimum three years experience and a fucking master's degree. Mm -hmm. I've actually had this conversation with a bunch of different groups of people recently. And I always feel very awkward because most of these groups of people are people who've either dropped out of university or took other paths in life and all this stuff. And I'm the, I'm looked to as the person who's been in university this whole time. And what, and of course I'm biased. Of course I have my own views on that thing, but I mean, acknowledging that my view is that I I think it's almost a miracle that the institution of university is as valued as it is in our society because and I think the library system is the same way the idea that people would go to school for something that is not necessarily that helpful for a career and yet pay all this money invest in this thing that in my view its best aspect is that it you know to put it most broadly makes you a better citizen you're more informed or more able to be critically informed about everything going on in society, more informed about all the fields of knowledge that humanity has but to see, offer. That's only true if you are lucky enough to have good teachers or good professors. Absolutely. And if you're lucky enough to be able to afford the prestigious schools that have more opportunity to learn. So like those are already two like very privileged positions. And I'm not saying there's no value in secondary education. What I'm saying is that it locks so many people out of being able to enter the workforce or achieve things that they should that should be within their grasp, you know, get a decent living wage, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that that doesn't make sense to me. You know, yeah. like we put so much prestige on academics, and I think that that is really, really wonderful. But when none of the professors in these academic institutions are incentivized to actually pass on that knowledge Mm -hmm. in a way that's capable of being retained to their students, what is the purpose of putting prestige in academics? Why did we do that other than elitism and capitalism and like social class division? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different points being put together here and it's, it's complicated to untangle them. But I think universities in their best view, if this could be done, would be free for people to do and would be a thing people do in order to educate themselves in terms of what's going, like 
just every, you know, whatever they want to learn about the world, whether that be science, the arts, whatever it is, and not necessarily be a barrier to their career. That would be the optimal. Of course, there's so much horror stories in terms of how much money people are willing to put up nowadays because they expect to make that money out of a career afterwards. That's a problem. But on the opposite end, there's the problem of careers also shouldn't block people by not having a university degree from having jobs. It shouldn't be this weird gatekeeping ticket. It doesn't make sense. I agree with you. There are some jobs that I do think require post-secondary education. Yeah. You know, like lawyer, doctor, those kinds of jobs. Obviously, like mechanical engineering, astrophysics, like you need to have you need to go into further academics to be able to get it. Yeah, and those to me, those are mostly just vocational goals. training. Sure. That isn't even about the academic experience per se. Yeah, it, most of it's about the actual real world application of that academic experience, yeah. 100%. But then there are jobs like like my job, you mm-hmm. know, like, a, like working in marketing, working in sales, like being a, a field sales rep where, yes, post-secondary education can be very helpful, a business degree, a marketing degree, whatever. A paid internship, or a co-op, you can pretty much get the same kind of information that you learn from a theoretical textbook in the middle of a classroom and a couple of projects, but you actually get to apply it yourself. So like, there are some jobs where it's like, it's an entry level position and it requires three years of experience Mm -hmm. and a master's degree. And it's like, you're paying 35K a year and you're expecting people to meet an unachievable standard like you're expecting people to be overqualified for these entry-level roles and have mounds of student debt and not be able to afford to live basically because you're paying the bare minimum that you should be paying somebody who just came out of a bachelor degree yeah and like that's where i'm coming from when i say things like elitism and social class division it is very much what it feels like especially when like 50s, 60s, 70s, you could go into advertising like immediately out of high school. Yeah. You know, to say my point, it's like it is an elitism in the job sphere and, and people should not have those various. And I think at the same time that education is an amazing experience that I wish everyone could could have yes. if they want it. And that's the difficulty for me and not be predatory on for their for loans or whatever else it is to feel this total need for it to be this vocational training. Like as though computer science is the only answer now to pick a degree that's worth taking in university. I'm like, that's exactly the type of degree that shouldn't be what you do at university. Not because computer science is bad, but it's a degree that many people take, not because they love computer science, but just as training for a job. Yes. Yeah. Also, it's getting to a point now, like what we saw with game design five, 10 years ago, mm-hmm. where it's- <laughs> Welcome to my life. Like, oh, everybody's going to go, well, like, this is the job that's going to make you so much money when you get out of school, and it's kind of fun, so we're all going to go for game design degrees. And then by the time you get out of school, the market is oversaturated because, you know, 30 40% of your fucking, like, graduating class in high school all went in for game design degrees. They all have the exact same amount of training that you do. Some of them even got into better, more prestigious schools. Some of them have, like family connections to these companies, you're not going to get a job in it. And we're going to see the same thing in computer science. And now it's shifting to cybersecurity, which does have a major skill shortage. But in five years, when some of these people get out of university, there's going to be no jobs left for them. It's it's another thing that's very hard to understand, but 
if you if you promote as a society, let's say like one that isn't promoted right now, right? Let's say we're all like absolutely it's the um, uh, trades. Everyone should go into trades. That's where the money's at. There's a huge shortage. We need skilled laborers. If everyone then did that, the exact opposite would happen. So there's this difficulty with giving advice that the advice of the last generation is everyone needs to go to university. University is where it's at. It's what gets you all the opportunities. And so now there's been a bit too many people doing that route. And that has caused prices to go up in, in paying for education, tuition and stuff like that, and then a, a lack of jobs afterwards. And that's really tough to reconcile because it, it probably was very good advice for many people back then. But now it's, we well, need to rebalance. And not to mention the fact that like when we were first going into university, there was a major recession in 2008 yeah. because of the housing crisis, right? And this was year before I graduated. You would have been just going into yeah. school. So we had all of these skilled laborers, um, highly educated people working in various fields, laid off instantly because of a huge crisis. And when they tried to get back into the workforce, the only positions available were entry-level positions that they were 10 times too qualified uh, for. Yes. So they took right. them. Yes. And now we have all of these companies having the expectation that these incredibly overqualified candidates are going to work for pennies on the fucking dollar yeah, what a good point. for entry-level pay. And so when you get out of your master's degree, that's an expectation for an entry-level job, they expect you to be willing to live on like 32 grand a year and no health benefits because that's what the people who were desperate for jobs during a major recession were willing to take and they were even more qualified than you. Our favorite, our favorite segue transition thing. So we're an indie movie and uh, think about Yeah, it. we always talk about politics. I'm amazed we haven't had people be like, I really, like I wanted to like this podcast, but they won't shut up about politics. <laughs> have you, have you been watching anything? Yeah, um, I watched, you might remember me talking about this. I think I talked about it on the pod, but um, I watched season two of the show Flack on Amazon yeah, Prime. Yeah. Yep, I remember this. Yeah, so season two just came out on Amazon wow. Prime. Um, it's That's fast. Unless season one came out a while ago. Season one did come out a while ago, but it's a BBC show that Amazon Prime bought the distribution rights right. for. So when they brought out season one, I think they had already I was started. already sort of later in its cycle. Yeah. I see. Yeah, so they were already about to premiere season two or like a month or two away from it. So it's been a while since season two was out, I think, on BBC, um, but it just came to Amazon Prime. So show stars Anna Paquin, just a little recap in case you don't remember me talking about mm -hmm. this, but it's about a PR firm uh, in London, and uh, it's mostly about her and two other women but the majority of the PR firm is women like it's owned and run by a black woman and then the PR people are all women so it's just an interesting dynamic from that regard mm -hmm. and public relations public relations is so similar to what I do in marketing so it's just kind of fun to like watch a show so similar to like my job except they're all disaster human beings who party way too hard right. and like are addicted to drugs. So it's just like a hot mess of a show and it's super fun and problematic and like weird interpersonal relationships and balance of like her work life. The second season is nuts. <laughs> like Right. That often happens. Completely spiraling. Yeah. It's she's completely spiraling out of control where the first season was like fun, a little bit messy, very like woman powery feeling the second season is her like 
kind of allowing her past trauma to catch up to her to a point that's causing her to completely spiral. Like she's so burnt out from work. She's damaged a bunch of her personal relationships by being just kind of a mess and not dealing with grief from old traumas. And she Mm. falls into like drugs really, really hard, drinking really, really hard. And I I don't want to give too much away, but it's kind of horribly entertaining watching someone's life fall apart, especially when like, you can see the parallels with your own life because of the type of job that she's doing and the type of like work environment that she's in. There's a lot of things I can relate to. And then just seeing her not be able to create work boundaries and not be able to decompress and not be able to um, handle her own emotional regulation issues and the choices that she makes to avoid those things. There are moments in my life where I've been given very similar options and I went in the other direction and I think I've I'm fairly healthy I have my own problems but I deal with them in what is a fairly healthy for me way and I've been able to maintain a lot of my relationships and and maintain my work balance so to watch literally get to watch somebody take the other choice yeah in a tv show has been really interesting and weirdly confronting for me but overall, overall, it's also just a really fun show to watch if you're even if you're not in the industry. It's very entertaining. Anna Paquin is phenomenal in it, way better than she was in True Blood. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, yeah. You're reminding me of this feeling that I've been having watching a few things that going through a major life transition myself. I think one of the things is like people always talk about this, but it's true. Being in grad school sort of insulates you from the real world, but which is true. And I've only just begun coming out and like, I'm really only things, but I, I have been noticing a weird level of relatability in shows that I didn't have Mm -hmm. before where I now actually kind of, I'm not just intellectually trying to be like, is this an interesting story? Is this thing, but I'm actually more emotionally connecting. And I'm like, is this life choice they're making relevant to my own life? Because in a way my life isn't on pause anymore. So now I'm thinking like just watching succession recently, right? They own this this family owns this giant media company and they're making choices of, do I switch into politics? Do I switch into things? And these are high, high level choices. But the ideas of choosing between morality, money, family, friends, and your own mental health are now more on the forefront for me. And so it, it's been a genuine mood shift for me. It's it's interesting watching stuff now that I've begun to taste that more. I think, like, I mean... Compared to shows that I would watch when I was younger, maybe I'm just watching a a different classification of television too. But I feel like right now there's more of a push towards creating realistic or relatable media um, in television, in movies. So you have these characters that feel more grounded, that have more like realistic, real world motivations and problems that they're working through. And even even something like Mayor of Easttown, like the not dealing with grief and yeah. family trauma and the interconnectedness of a small community and the pluses and minuses of that, it feels really rooted in a true reality that a lot of people can relate to. And I think even, even in the most ostentatious shows, even the most unrelatable shows, like the Disney plus Marvel shows that are all about superheroes, they're still very grounded in real world problems. Like WandaVision is all about grief and 
going through the five stages of grief. And Falcon and the Winter Soldier is all about, you know, like racial trauma and like shifting ideals of times and stuff like that. So it's like, it's just interesting that this is the direction the majority of media is going because it's easier for you to connect with main characters and place yourself in those stories. And I feel like it creates a more lasting impression. Yeah. Oh, geez. I can't remember who it was, but someone was, had this line where they're like, here are instances of this important thing in movies. And at the very end, they added a TV show and they said, well, TV really is like at the same level of movies now. And I almost think it's even more tilted towards TV and like that area now because movies are now kind of dominated by these franchise blockbusters and then some indie movies and stuff like that, which is part of the reason we like to look at indie movies for have different things going on. But TV is really where I get so much more emotion out of them, so much more connection on an average basis. So, like, it's hard to find movies that aren't just a fun ride now, like, lacking depth of themes. Like, they're very fun, but they're almost the they're almost the distracting ones now. I mean, yes, I agree, and I I disagree. I think you know now since COVID and so much more being pushed into the world of streaming rather than just like blockbusters. I think we're going to see like a little more balance in films as opposed to like appealing to the lowest common denominator bubblegum movies. Mm-hmm. We're going to start getting that kind of depth back. I feel like we're going to see more dramas and stuff in, in movies cause they'll be direct to streaming. But I, and again, with TV it's tough because if you don't have access to prestige television, you're going to have a very different viewpoint on what TV is doing because there are still tons and tons of sitcoms. There are still tons and tons of teen soap operas. Like these shows all still exist that were popular five years ago, 10 years ago that didn't have the depth that were very surface level and cute and fun and just entertainment schlock. It's just we, because again of streaming, have access to these prestige television shows like HBO shows like Mayor of Easttown, et cetera. So it's, I don't know. I kind of feel like we're at an apex where things can balance out. Things mm-hmm. can level out on both sides and we can have both. But I think our viewpoint right now is skewed because so few movies have come out right now because of COVID. And we personally, because of the streaming services we subscribe to, have access to prestige television that other people may not be watching. Yeah, I mean, I tend to follow like, and and this might not be the best intersection of movies server but i tend to follow like what movies are nominated for the oscars each year and for the last like five or six years i've watched probably a good half of them most years and whatnot and i'd say like very few of them really affected me or i felt like that deeply connected with whereas i feel like each year i probably find a good five to ten tv shows that i felt like really affected me yeah how many of those were nominated for golden globes or Emmys, then, those TV shows. Well, that I'm not sure. Like, but... if that's the metric, right? But you're using a metric of an award season for movies as your gauge for how emotionally effective these films are, but you're not doing the same for a TV show. It's just TV shows you happen to find. And I think you could do the same thing with movies. You could just happen to find movies that, because of the nature of their genre or the amount of money put into the film for, like, PR campaigns, which is really all that affects the Oscars. It's how much money you can put into a PR campaign. 
you can find movies doing the same things. There are tons of like horror movies, mystery movies, um, like romances that are not necessarily going to get nominated for an Oscar because they don't fit that like weird elitist mold and they don't have shitloads of money backing them for PR campaigns, but they do have the emotional resonance you're talking about. I mean, yeah, I mean, I I can't know for sure what's what's going on, but this is just a general point about my own experiences with, uh, you know, watching tons of movies and watching tons of TV. And I would just say on average, the TV shows I managed to pick up are more emotionally resonant, especially in the prestige TV sort of area. I think their depth of themes and depth things. There's just so many of them that are so incredible. And a lot of these movies that are given the same credit or given the same accolades, I, I... so many of them, I there's such a division in movies, I find, where they're either really trying to be Oscar bait and feel false in that certain way, or yeah. they're kind of blockbustery things that are very fun to watch, but I don't feel that much depth in a different way. So it's kind of like a, a lot of movies don't land. I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. Um I mean, I do think we've watched a lot of movies that had uh, that have emotional depth. I mean, we watched what was that one? Uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire mm-hmm. that you really connected to. Midsummer, mm-hmm. Hereditary, Get Out. Like, there's been a lot of like genre bending films that have had like a lot of emotional depth. So I don't. I'm not saying there's none. That's, I don't yeah, know. It's it's not about that. There's none. It's just I'd say like on average, I, I find. I look forward to TV more when I'm looking at lists that are including TV. I just feel like there's more of a chance that I'm going to find stuff that really resonates with me. Whereas I'm finding I have to dig more with movies. Like I'm finding I I, I start a movie and I think more often than not, this is not going to be good. Um, or maybe not not mm-hmm. good, but like just going to be kind of acceptable. I think it's tough too, because television shows and miniseries have like a longer breadth of time to really flesh out these characters so you spend a lot more Absolutely. time with them. They have a lot more time. For I, I think I like that. So it is a little more easier. Often. Yeah. No. And I totally get that. I think, I think that's reasonable and it makes a lot of sense because you're spending a lot more time in the life of this person. So it becomes significantly more three dimensional. Whereas when you're watching a movie, they maybe have time to dig into one to max three characters. So it gets, it can, it can feel almost a little like egotistical when you're spending time with one character and that's all you're really seeing. I think I mostly agree with what you're saying. I just, I don't know. I don't like the idea that there's Yeah, no- you're pointing out there's, there is so many other factors, as you're saying. There's so many ways in which this might be a particular thing. Just as a basic level, the pandemic means you can't go to theaters and watch movies, which is a huge part of movie the movie-going uh, experience. That's what they're made to, to do. Right. That's one of their big differences from TV. And so the fact that we haven't done that for over a year and a half is going to affect your like one's overall feelings towards movies. In addition to everything else you're stating about how we only look at movies in a certain way and how we like me and you in particular have access to every single TV show at all that's on streaming services. I also just don't love using the Oscars as like a metric for for quality of movies, because I think it's incredibly inaccurate for how good a movie is going to be um, and how like impactful it will be long lasting on the cultural zeitgeist because so much of it is really just about the dollars that you spend and the people that you know to get nominated. And especially when you're using that metric for movies, but not using something similar for television shows, it's just whatever you find for TV. 
you're not basing it off of who was nominated or won the Golden Globes that year. Right. So it's it just it feels a little skewed. I, I, I'm It's often true for me. So I guess it's just not as skewed of a thing for me. Like Oscar winning movies do tend to be the ones that I tend to like the most in a year. So it, it doesn't feel that disconnected for as much for me. So, so when I'm saying it, I'm just saying it as like a this is me comparing the best of what movies have to offer to everything that TV has to offer. And even the best of movies I find are often have not been ex- as exciting to me as TV. I don't know. I guess I just have a hard time with considering what's nominated or wins the Oscars the best of movies when they do not count half the genres that exist. And nine times out of ten, the movies are nominated under genres that are incorrect in general. Right. So it's like it doesn't it doesn't make sense to consider those the best of what movies are offering when if they don't have enough money to launch a full PR campaign to be nominated, they can't get nominated. Mm -hmm. That's one aspect of it. If they don't send out all these, like, pay a shitload of money to send out tons and tons of screeners and campaign for all the best critics, they're not getting nominated. That's just a fact. But the Oscars also continuously slights genre films. So if they don't fall into traditional film categories like drama or like period romances, they're probably not getting nominated. So you're missing out on the incredible films that come out under like fantasy genres sci-fi genres, horror genres, thriller genres, simply because they don't fit the classical mold of what is considered prestige as far as like the Academy is concerned. I do think TV has been particularly good recently. I don't disagree with that. Of course, there's terrible TV shows, especially if we count reality TV. Like, let's not even go there. But yeah. Well, and all the schlock that Netflix is bringing out recently and like, just like the sitcoms, and I just don't watch a lot of schlock fine. too. So that like you know helps. But the same with movies. Of course, I'm not watching tons of these terrible movies that come out as well. Yeah, I just like <laughs> I don't know. I can't even. I've watched the majority of the Oscar movies from the last few years. I can't remember most of what was nominated anymore. Yeah, like I none of it is impactful. So that's why I think that's why it's such a sticking point for me. Where I'm like, it's supposed to be the best of what movies are offering. I can't think of a single movie that was nominated like 10 years ago, except for Get Out and Nomadland. And like Shape of Water, just because it was such a weird choice. Yeah. You know? And it's like, after that, all I can think of is like, maybe, what what was it? Like 15 years ago when Lord of the Rings won a bunch of awards? Like, what the fuck happened in between? I have no idea. So I watched, this is such a weird one, but I watched The Kitchen with Melissa McCarthy, Elizabeth Moss, and Tiffany Haddish. And also, your your favorite, I cannot pronounce his first name, but Donald Gleason? Donal. 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 Ah, I was close. The Kitchen is a new movie. Just It just was released on Netflix. It's about three mob wives whose husbands go to jail in the Irish mob in the 1970s in New York and in Hell's Kitchen. And then they take it over for their husbands. Didn't they just do a movie about that called The Widows? Viola Davis, like a year ago? I don't know that one. So, but... I'm pretty sure that... I'm pretty sure it got nominated for a fucking Oscar. But that's a pretty common thing that happens in the movies, right? So, where two movies with the exact same premise are made. It wasn't the Irish mob specifically. It's just a bunch of mob wives come together to, like take over the business after their husbands either get imprisoned or die. Yeah, it's... I'm going to go... The movie's not good. The Widows is pretty good. The movie is competently put together. The storyline makes sense. But there's just something about it where you understand the premise from the beginning and you see exactly what they're doing, right? 
And so then they take over and each of the three women have a different reason for wanting power in the mafia. One wants to actually help the community and bring back the best of what the, the mob has to offer, which is protection from other crimes and other things and protecting businesses and whatnot. And basically being a legitimate business that's actually helping the Irish stay established in the Hell's Kitchen. Another wants power plays with all the other areas and to have their area, you know, sort of win the war. That's Tiffany Haddish's character wants. And then um, the third was abused. Elizabeth, no surprise here. Elizabeth Moss's character was uh, abused. And so she is, wants like wants power and revenge. And so she learns how to cut up bodies, how to kill people, you know, the whole nitty gritty of the whole thing. Because she's like, I'm never Mm going to allow this to happen to me again, right? So they make an interesting team. But once you get that down, like once I've stated all those things, the rest of the movie is just play like paint by numbers. Like, you know exactly what's going on. And we've seen so many mob movies and I don't like mob movies perfectly. So I'm already sort of biased against this, but I can respect when the acting is really well done. When there's a sense in which you can see that the director and writers, they want to say something. I don't know what it is exactly about the human condition or whatever, yeah. but you can feel that here. Anything like that felt completely derivative from other mob movies, but it also wasn't fun right? Like for a movie with that starred and is the main character, Melissa McCarthy, there's no comedy in it at all. And so it's, it's fine. Of course, it's she got can her do that. and Tiffany Haddish. Yeah. And Donald Gleason, like all of them do comedy. Yeah. So and that's so, just confusing. It's just, it's just a choice. And so I couldn't quite understand what the purpose of the overall movies do, except that you kind of get it. It's a, common denominator movie that people who are interested in those actors and actresses interested in mom movies interested in this funny premise to 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 redo it but they really tried to make the premise serious which is a good thing to do it's just what the weirdest casting choices to make that work i guess like mm-hmm. so yeah i think overall it just it feels like it's something that's such a product of this exact period in history that you can see exactly the pitch and how it happened and to make it, and they made it, but no one was actually 100% in it for this project. No one was like, this is what I wanted to do. Right. So funny. I was, uh, I was talking to uh, Sarah the other day. Mm-hmm. She's very into Handmaid's Tale, The Handmaid's Tale. Sure. Like, she's like a huge Margaret Atwood fangirl. And she's always trying to get me to like read Margaret Atwood or like be more into it. And I've tried. I have... I have my own problems with Margaret Atwood, but I have given it a legitimate try. I read The Handmaid's Tale. I hated it. I did really like Orcs and Crake. That's the only one that I've read by her that I actually enjoyed. Wow. So you've really given it but a she's shot. she's messaging me. Oh, yeah. I read I read probably like four or five of her oh books because Sarah wouldn't shut up about it. She's like, no, she's the best. Like, you just haven't found the right book. And then as soon as I read Orcs and Crake and I was like, okay, I actually really enjoyed this. She was like, okay, we're on a roll. I'm giving you the next one in that series. And I read it and I was like, I fucking hate this book. It's so boring. I hated everything about it. And she's like, fuck. Um, but anyway, season, whatever season they're on with the Handmaid's Tale TV show. Yeah. Just finished. I watched the first season of the Handmaid's Tale. I mostly enjoyed it, despite disliking the book. I actually. I like the first season. I actually even reread the book thinking, okay, maybe I just read the book at the wrong time. And I'll actually enjoy it now because I enjoyed the TV show. Still hated the fucking book. Um, <laughs> and then I just, I couldn't stand the show after that like it just it kept evolving and getting more like complicated I just I didn't like anybody in it so I was Mm -hmm. like I'm just not watching this anymore 
So the most recent season just concluded. She messaged me. She's like, have you been watching The Handmaid's Tale? And I was like, bitch, I haven't watched that since like episode two of the second season. I fucking hate that show. Mm-hmm. She was like, why? It's so amazing. And I'm like, I just, I fundamentally dislike Margaret Atwood's writing. I know you want me to like it. And at this point, the only reason for me to get back into it is because of the cast that's in it. And I feel really weird about watching Elizabeth Moss take down a misogynistic cult while she herself is a member of a cult that is known to be misogynistic. And she was like, oh, I forgot she was a Scientologist. That is kind of weird. Yeah. Um, And now it's like all I can think about. It's it's such a common thing that, you know, so many things I like have problematic people or problematic things. So it's like that to me. I'm just like, it's good to point out everyone should know this about it going in. But at the same time, I think like then we can judge it still on its own merits and whatnot. I think the first season is incredible. Oh, yeah, no. But once it was done, I'm like, I get it. I just, I don't know. For some reason, I just didn't see it moving forward. Like, I just didn't get how the story continued in a way that interested me. I and I feel like up. it could have been a movie or like a mini series, And I probably would have been like, okay, this was, this was pretty good. Yeah. But the fact that it's on like season four or fucking five now, I'm like, how is it? The book's like 300 pages. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's way past the book How is it point. still how is it still going? It's nonsensical. And now Margaret Atwood wrote a sequel to it like three right, years yes. after the first book came out. And I'm like, okay. I heard that at was this not point, very good. It's all just, yeah, at this point, it's all just capitalism now. And I'm like, what the, f- oh, I just can't. And I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't watch The Handmaid's Tale or you shouldn't watch Elizabeth Moss movies. I don't give a shit what you watch. I just think it's objectively funny that a woman in a cult is playing a woman trying to destroy a cult. I just, I just find that kind mm-hmm. of like ironically amusing and like weirdly tone deaf on her part. Like I, I genuinely feel like she doesn't see the relationship between it, um, which makes it funnier to me and kind of sad. Mm, I'm trying to remember it. What I'm remembering is that when I was a kid, I liked, um, Ender's game by Orson Scott Card, And I still want to read his later books actually, but I, he's a Mormon. Yeah. he, was just a mess and did believed in almost the exact opposite of the principles of his books. So there's this very different things. Although hold off on the, just, just being Mormon in particular, because actually a lot of fantasy authors are Mormon. And generally speaking, when they're talking, like they have very normal views on things. I, you know, it, it they are still religious, blah, blah. There's still problems with it. Or Scott Card in particular is a raging homophobe and like has like, has yeah. definitely discussed his, his very particular views on like, basically fascism and things like this so his is like truly yeah no he's like the worst version of like mormonism but there was another where who was it it's like the oh it was um jack kerouac who told who became Mm. hyper conservative later in his life and hated the fact that people would look to his books as or his book as a as a way to like become a rebel to society he's like what are you doing just become a well, I mean, people used to like lift up The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood as this like amazing piece of postmodern feminism. Mm. And like Margaret Atwood has explicitly said, um, I'm not a feminist. This isn't a feminist book. And I'm yeah, like, Yeah, I remember this stuff too. It's so bizarre. I, fine, I guess you wrote it, but I don't know how you can write this and really genuinely see that it has no merit for feminism. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. But it's hard to argue because, like, you wrote the book, but you're also wrong. Like, I don't get it. But my favorite, my favorite, and we were talking about this earlier, is always going to be 
Stephanie Meyer and the Twilight books. Mm. Because, like, they are explicitly Mormon and they're, like, hardcore Mormon indoctrination kind of themes in that book. It's not even just, like, Orson Scott Card, who is a terrible person and a Mormon, who wrote these fantasy sci-fi books that really don't have a ton of, like, Mormon themes in them. They have some, but not a huge amount. Whereas Twilight is, like, everything is about a woman joining a Mormon family and converting to Mormonism. Like that's the whole story. And the fact that that got turned into a piece of fan fiction that then became 50 shades of gray. (laughs) Yeah. Is probably the best thing that could have ever happened to like this Mormon propaganda vampire book. It's just super funny. Yeah. (laughs) I think that the amount that big authors in America are very religious, if not Mormon is I don't know. It's something to, I don't know what to do with the information, right? But it's like, it definitely plays a role. Like Twilight is clearly has, it matters that there's religious themes in it. Like it is not divorced from its themes. No, no. And it's just funny. Like when you, when you read it and like, it's not that I've reread Twilight recently. I just remember this, but like, there's a lot of scenes where Stephanie Meyer describes the clothing and like, particularly the clothing that, uh, Bella and Edward wear and there's a scene like the first time she's going to meet the Cullen family and she's wearing this like long sleeve blue blouse with a ankle length khaki skirt and her hair's in a ponytail and Edward upon seeing her tells her that she looks completely indecent and far too tempting and I'm just like Come on. Mm. It's a floor length. There's so much khaki in that book. She describes so many different shades of khaki. Everyone wears it. It's all like ankle length skirts and like up to the neck buttoned blouses. It's insane that anyone, any 14 year old could read this and be like, this is so sexy. (laughs) This is like the most romantic thing ever. It's like, what? fuck he sits in her bedroom at night and stares at her while she's sleeping and doesn't know it and then she just wears like floor-length khaki skirts all day and gets told that she looks like a whore what like why why did anyone buy this book and think it was legitimately good and even i did i was like 14 when the first one came out and i was like this is the best i love vampires Mm -hmm. this book is awful (laughs) there's so much to unpack in there but what is i do think the the fact of the religious repression within it is as much as this is frustrating is part of what amplifies the romantic aspects. The amount of forbiddenness in it is what makes it more romantic. And that's effed up, but I really think that's uh, one of the charms. And I think it's uh, in fantasy. I think there's a funny one where in fantasy books, often there's a complete removal of religious people in the medieval times, or they're always just pure evil. Right. So it's like, Mm. And I always find that an interesting case because in actual medieval times, obviously, religion played a massive role. The centerpiece of any town was the church. But in these books, the church are either evil or they are like completely on the sidelines. They play no big role in the, the wars or the choices of the characters or anything like this. And that is... There's just something there. There's still there's something deeply entwined in the religious consciousness in America of this, like you either have to avoid it or place it into a book 
in, in these special ways because religion's in this very particular moment in the last 40 years where people are either very religious or they don't want to talk about it but are still religious or are very anti-religious. It's just, it's so all over the map. Outside of religion, I also find in in fantasy books, in horror books, many of the books that I've read, I'm sure many right. of the books that you've read because you read more fantasy than I do, the biggest thing that I always pick up on is that there is always, and even in Twilight, these relationships that are like weirdly like possessive and predatory and like super like bordering on abusive, but yes. they're the pinnacle of romance in these books. And it's in all of them. And many of them are very compelling stories. But when you actually sit back and unpack like the paragraph you just read, like if this was the real world, this would be a horrifying, per- like he would be in jail. Mm-hmm. Like objectively, Edward Cullen is a pedophile. He is a 200 year old boy man creeping into the room of a 16 year old girl. Like it's, there's just so many problems in these books and it's in all of them. It's in the women of the other world series by Kelly Armstrong. It's even to a degree in the book that, that I'm reading right now that our friend let me, mm-hmm. that I am incredibly engrossed in. I am enjoying so, so much. But when you actually take a step back and unpack it critically, it's very weird feeling how the central relationship in these genre books are so bordering on on abusive. Mm-hmm. And why is that the compelling relationship in all of these books? Why is that so common? Yeah. And I can't even I can't even say it's always male authors doing it. It's female authors too. Mm-hmm. I mean the Kelly Armstrong books are written by a woman. The uh, Southern Vampire series, the True Blood books are written by a woman. The book that I'm reading right now is written by a woman and these are on like, horror genres, mystery genres romance genres, fantasy genre. It's all across the board. It's both genders. We can't, I mean, we can blame this on the patriarchy. We can blame it on misogyny, but we can't say that it's male authors writing women as submissive because that's, that's not true anymore. Women are doing this just as often. And I think we need to start unpacking why this sells books so well, because it, it must. I was just actually seeing some stuff, more stuff about, um, the name of the wind series, the King Killer Chronicles, which is my favorite fantasy series, and about the relationships that very famously huge division point about the relationships in that series are a big deal because the main character has basically one like OTP, like one girl he's after. But there, there's other women he dates or meets and does stuff with throughout the series. But really, there's one girl who is coming in and out of the story who is clearly the like main love interest. But people despise his kind of overly romantic gestures to her and then her weird desire to leave and then come back. Rothfuss himself has said a few things about why the relationships are this way, that he is 16 at the time, that there, there's certain things to do with the world. Like one of the one of the excuses that I find most difficult to reconcile is that he explicitly made the world a normal quote-unquote fantasy world, but points out how sexist a normal fantasy world actually is. So he does not solve the sexism problem in it. So the world is very sexist, but he makes it much more apparent that that's the case in his world. Okay. And so like, you know, why that firstly, there's a choice doing that. Like, why did you do that? But then secondly, are you excused then from the fact that there's lots of sexism happening in the books that many of the main characters act sexist and things like this? And that he clearly, and I and I'll admit to this, he clearly 
puts some of his own male fantasy, male gaze stuff in it, where there are yeah. sometimes very extra sexy women doing extra sexy stuff in a way that does not right. feel necessary to the story. And this is famous across all fantasy, that this happens all the time. There's always overly over-descriptions of their breasts and their, you know, yeah. bosoms as, they, as they're walking and, you know, their hair flowing. What's with the knife sheath metaphor that's in I every know. fantasy I book know. I've ever read? Doesn't matter if the author's a man or a woman, if they're white or a person of color, always the knife and sheath metaphor. Like, I think it's just one that feels medieval that you can get away with. And I I do kind of get it because it's like, yeah, I mean, I understand the imagery that you're doing there, but it feels very weird and like objectifying, but like not sexy to me. I'm like, I don't want to, because now I'm just picturing you stabbing her in the bits. Not in a sexy way, in a like knife way. I don't love that. <laughs> and yeah, it's always heaving breasts and like weird euphemisms. Like he looked at me and it shot straight to the heat between my legs. Oh like, God, Why? I know. Yeah, Why but... did you need to describe it exactly like that? <laughs> yeah, and so I'll just. Like... And yet I eat that shit up nine times out of ten. Yeah. I, I, and then I have to unpack I, it I feel later like, and be yeah, like, the, that was not great. The way. <laughs> male authors and female authors do do these bad presentations is different. I do feel like the toxic abusive relationship is way more common with female authors. I don't know why that is, but those are the ones that tend to have that very, like that, that the relationship itself as a relationship, as this guy who's a protective stalkering figure, like the, the brooding romantic lead, just so common in male dominated ones. It's very much the, the inconsequentialness of the the woman that's being chased. But I think I think like that's the opposite exact opposite view of what that abusive relationship would mm. look at like. Like this is the woman describing it from her perspective and then you're seeing the man from his perspective where he's like, "Well, yes, I love her because she's mine, but I also like have my duties and don't give a sh-. like she's over here. Fuck off until I need you in my bed, maiden." And yep. it's like that's the exact opposite description of what we're like it's the exact thing just from a different viewpoint. Yeah. So I think they are describing the same relationship. Mm. You're just seeing it through two different gazes, but it is the same identical, abusive, weird, super possessive relationship. I think um, my most charitable view, and because I love those books, so just you know, forgive me for trying to give them a charitable interpretation of the relationships and name. No, of it's women. fine. I'm but, yeah engrossed in this fucking book that our friend yeah. let me. I'm in love with it, and I mean, I have my own. The Southern. Man I mean, you can name you can name the books. The same. <laughs> Yeah. I can't remember the name of it. Um, it's, they're by uh, yeah. Nalini Singh. Um, yeah. So it's Angel's Kiss was the one I just finished. And I think the one I'm reading now is called Angel's Consort. Right. But I'm like, I'm fucking in love with it. It's so good. But they're problematic in the same way that the Southern Vampire series is problematic. But I fucking love those terrible ass books mm-hmm. too. Okay. The charitable view here is that, here's how I'd put it. So the main character of Name of the Wind is this like, how do you call it? Like Wonder Boy. Like he's just great at everything, and that's his thing. I oh, think so. Like the boy version of a Mary Sue. Yes. Yeah. This is what There's no real out. boy version. <laughs> no. Misogyny. Yeah. No. It's it's very common with guy characters. I guess people just expect it out of the guy characters, so it doesn't give them a name. It's the Han Solo effect. Yeah. Um, but then the girlfriend or the, the the romantic interest in it, I think she too is actually extremely skilled at many things. 
because she lives in a sexist society, though, she has had to take a totally different route. He goes to a university and learns magical powers. She has had no resources to be able to pay for or get in. There is women in the university, but much less. And usually because their parents pay for it or whatever. She doesn't have the resources. So what has she had to do? She's had to get artistic and perhaps, it's not totally implied, but let's say like romantic consorts to make money. And mm. that's her way. And she's manipulated these these men and also done all these things. But she's very smart and she's become a spy at times. She's done all sorts of other things that are very skilled and difficult. She sounds but, way cooler. Yeah. And, and so she has to leave his life all the time. Why? Because she has to go fucking make money somewhere. Like she has to do shit. Yeah. Whereas he's just like, oh, yeah, I'm around. It's like he has to leave all the time, too, though. So it's absolutely ridiculous that he says, where'd she go? It's like. You're leaving every 10 minutes to go on your fantasy adventures. Don't even. Because the expectation is that she'll just be there waiting for him. Oh, yeah, exactly, him. right? So I love actually Rest heaving for him. Yeah. <laughs> I love the way that she's written, that she's totally living her own life that you don't see 90% of because they only see each other her once story in a while. sounds cooler. Yeah, so I, I really like that. Does that excuse the gross language he uses often in, mm, yeah. uh, in the romanticness? It's like, you know, I don't know, but... I've read books by women with, and I'm not saying their language is great either when it comes to romance. No, it's absolutely not. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I think, yes, I do think male authors write women terribly. Also just in a way that's weird and doesn't make sense half the time. Um, like the descriptions of what women's bodies do is not anatomically <laughs> or scientifically possible. But, but at the same time, I don't want to tear apart genre fiction because I really do love it and like I'm really enjoying these like angels whatever books and I I love my like stupid horror mystery books and the women of the other world series and Anne Rice books mm -hmm. which are a whole other thing so I don't know what the answer here is do I think a lot of the interpersonal relationships are fucking super problematic and misogynistic and weirdly sexist absolutely Am I still devouring these books every chance I get because they're fucking fun to read? 150%. Yeah. What's the what's the kind of fantasy? What's the subgenre of fantasy that I like where it's set in the modern world? What's that called? Urban fantasy. Urban fantasy. I like that. Yeah, even most supernatural stuff, you could say it's not because they came from different areas, but in a way it's like a subgenre of urban fantasy. Like in the sense that I agree it's with the that. ones, yeah. Urban fantasy came later. I think especially with like things like uh, the Women of the Other World series by Kelly Armstrong, because it's not just like, oh, it's a book about werewolves or it's a book about vampires. So you can put it under like horror mystery type thing. There's also necromancers and half demons and mm -hmm. like magic users, witches. So it's like you're getting more of that breadth of a fantasy realm set in a modern time. And they all they're almost always mystery based stories like I feel like a lot of these urban fantasies fall into the mystery romance realm too. Yeah. So I like it's it's hard to say that just because you don't have magic users, it's not a fantasy. I think that's objectively yeah. untrue if there's anything fantastical in it and it follows these same tropes, it's a fantasy. Genres in a way are are not technical scientific definitions. They come from histories of how books and plots were written and what people read. And then they, they're either building off that, right? So some urban fantasy authors mostly read fantasy books their whole lives and then wrote a 
fantasy books set in modern times. You know, the Women from the Other World series or Twilight, probably not huge fantasy fans or didn't have to be. Like that has nothing to do, right? They're probably existing in a whole different genre, a whole different lineage of romance and supernatural and dark and gothic books that they then built a thing. And so, yes, now we can label it urban fantasy because there are people in the fantasy genre who are writing similar types of things, but they came from totally different places. And it just depends on what you're interested in when you're talking about this idea of genre. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the Women of the Other World series is a little bit more of a cross section into fantasy because Kelly Armstrong has written other books that are more closely aligned with mm. what you know you would consider fantasy. They're not high fantasy, and like the Women of the Other World series is dependent on a world where fantastical creatures exist. They have like a whole like a high table leadership. Mm-hmm sort of delineation set up where there's like a leader of the werewolves and a leader of the witches and they all come to the table to like determine territories and how to solve problems and stuff. So it does it does feel more like a fantasy right. series than something like the Southern Vampire series which definitely feels more like a romance mystery that has fantastical elements built into it. Right. So I think there's absolutely yeah. some delineation there, but I, I still have no problem considering both of those things, urban fantasy. I don't think you're wrong to yeah. consider. Well, and I've had the same types of fights and, I, you know, this is, I'm just going to go with the, the historical thing probably matters more than anything else in this with sci-fi and fantasy and people being like, what sci-fi fantasy? Easiest thing is sci-fi is set in the future and doesn't and presumes a scientific explanation to how things are functioning. Mm-hmm. Is that true, though? Half the time they have psychics. Psychics are a hugely popular thing in sci-fi. So what, you know, what does that even say, really? Right. But then in fantasy, right, it's usually historical, although that's not necessarily the case, as we know with urban fantasy. And, you know, that it has certain tropes or, you know, certain hero's journey. Does it have to have a hero's journey? No, it just happens to be that every, every almost every fantasy does. So, you know, what do these things say? It's like, well, it's often well, that high people, fantasy specifically. Yeah. It's often that these things are just genres that people read Lord of the Rings 10 too many times and are like, let's write another one, you know, and that's and that's yeah. how you get that type of one. Whereas if someone read Dracula 20 times or Frankenstein 20 times, they're going to have a different thing that they they move on to. Yeah. And I've had I've had the same argument with sci-fi and horror. Mm-hmm. Like is aliens or the thing a sci-fi or is it horror? In my mind, it's both. I don't see how you can separate those two things because it absolutely follows the tropes of both those things. Yeah. And I don't I don't understand the need to like gatekeep genres. It feels really pedantic mm. to me, you know, like it feels like you're being unnecessarily elitist about what what constitutes this genre and like only these specific things can be included. It's fundamentally untrue. You know what I mean? Like this isn't the birth of this genre like 400 years ago when it was first written. We've come a long way. It's developed. We have subgenres. We have genre bending content. Genres are always evolving too. Just accept it. Yeah, just accept it. Accept now that like you can have a high fantasy that has elements of horror in it, and that's okay. You can have an urban fantasy that has elements of romance and mystery in it, and that's okay. Like I just I don't get why some people are so determined to force everything to fit into these like super tidy old school boxes that Mm -hmm. simply aren't applicable anymore. I think part of it is just that people like something in that genre and they get very upset when they can see 
that thing, you know, the world's changing and that what they wanted and more of that place to come in is no longer being the case. And it's so explicit in that whole debacle. I think it was like three or four years ago now, maybe a little bit longer at the Hugo and Nebula Awards. I forget which one it was. Maybe it was both. But there's this whole thing of this the sci-fi awards where sci-fi is now developing to really include minority voices. And there is a whole old guard who are like, this is not science fiction. This is just the fantasies of, you know, liberal-minded whatever. And they're just exploring their weird fantasies about minorities and, uh, you know, gender expression and all this stuff. That isn't what science fiction is about science and the future. And it's like, whose future? What do you, like, you know, you're talking about because you loved these books that had only white men and no one else on the planet uh, talking about a future in which only white men mattered. And they're like, "Uh, we don't like that that's changing. Have you seen the whole debacle that happened recently with D&D? Oh, yeah. Did you want to talk about it more? Oh, my God. Yeah. So they're the guy who invented D&D in the -hmm. first place in like, what was it, like the 50s or the 60s? Forever ago. Yeah. Under a company called TSR. Turns out, big surprise, giant racist, mm-hmm. homophobe, super misogynist, very gatekeepy with D&D, where it was like, oh, it's just, you know, white nerds and only white nerd men are allowed to play D&D. So anyway, D&D got sold off to another gaming company. It is no longer created or manufactured or developed mm-hmm. by TSR. TSR went defunct for a while. The guy died who created D&D. His, what is it, his grandson or something now? Or his son? Somebody affiliated with him decided he wanted to bring back TSR oh. to create new D&D games or whatever under, like, new names mm-hmm. because it's now created by this other company. So people within the D&D community today were a little concerned because they were celebrating this man who is a hyper bigot uh, for being the creator of D&D. And they're like, hey, understand that he is the creator, so there's something to say there, but just want to see, like, what your thoughts are on being inclusive around D&D. Like, are people like myself going to be welcome at your table, at your stores, to purchase your products? And this is coming from, like, Mm -hmm. trans women and people Mm -hmm. of color who are asking these questions on Twitter. And this old guard of guys who brought back TSR are dodging the question, calling these people stalkers, threatening them, telling them that they're just like woke liberal babies um, mm-hmm. and that this isn't what D&D is about. And this man like saved so many young boys who were bullied all the time. And it's like all these people were asking was that was if they were going to be welcome. Mm-hmm. In the community that you're building off of the legacy of a misogynist and a bigot who this entire game has just grown so far beyond. Yep. And the company that creates many of these D&D affiliated products and games have explicitly said that they are inclusive, that everyone is welcome at the table. So many people who own comic book stores and gaming stores where people do D&D tournaments out of have said explicitly, anyone is welcome to play D&D. D&D is for everyone. Everyone should feel included. But this old guard is so insistent on preserving the legacy of this horrible man simply because he created a game that they love, Mm -hmm. that they're unwilling 
to admit that he was objectively fucking terrible. And they're just explicitly basically telling the community that, like, no, you're not going to be welcome mm-hmm. because you're not who D&D is for. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's that's the even worse part, right? It's clearly that they are, they're inspired by that and they believe in that view. They thought yes. what was great about D&D was the ability to be your warrior wizard and save the sexy the sexy ladies. And that's what D&D is all about. That old school view of fantasy, which has completely expanded. It reminds me so much of the cyberpunk view where they're asking the creators of the, cyber, the new cyberpunk game, CD Projekt Red, you know, will you be able to like become trans and all the stuff with your robot parts and all this stuff? And they're like, ah, oh, no, but you can choose which robot penis you want. Like as a, as a man, like you can choose your detail, like whether, whether you're uncircumcised or circumcised. So customization is there. Oh. Does the customization actually matter to the actual gameplay of the fantasies that certain types of people would be very interested in these games? No, because that's not what these people are thinking of. They're thinking of no the, the you know, first person shooter guys who are going to be playing this game. I think, too, it's just highlighting like the worst parts of nerd culture, right? Like that deep core old guard gatekeeping, hyper-misogynistic nerd culture mm-hmm. that we know, we know exists. We know exists because we got movies like Weird Science from that culture. We got things like Scott Pilgrim versus the world before anyone understood that like you're supposed to unironically hate Scott Pilgrim for being a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. You know, women aren't allowed to like nerd things because we created this because women treated us like shit and the, and the alpha jocks beat us up. Like, it's that weird gatekeeping mentality where like a woman is uncomfortable or a person of color is uncomfortable going into a comic book store to ask for a comic because they're going to get berated by the guy who owns it. And like, I feel like in a lot of ways that does absolutely still exist. I'm not discounting that by any means. There are still pieces of shit who own comic book stores or gaming stores or bookstores that are going to pull this shit on you and are going to make you feel like a fucking idiot for even having like a passing interest in something. But in a lot of ways, there are pockets of these nerd communities that have moved so far beyond mm-hmm. that, that it's it's disheartening and frustrating to see that there's still holdovers. There's still yep. so many holdovers. And they're always the loudest and the cruelest, realistically, because nerd culture is based around a sense of otherness and a sense of loss, like lack of community because of your interests, it should be the most welcoming place in the world. It shouldn't matter how smart you are or how much knowledge you have on a subject. If you feel alone, you should be welcome to join these communities because that is the integral core piece of why they were created in the first fucking place. Yep. It's so many subcultures have their own problems, whatever, but everything we've addressed, I think, is just it's so true and I when I used to be obsessed with magic cards and not because I was gay that I, I I never felt like totally alienated because I was gay or anything like that but the general problems of geek culture we're talking about were just so prevalent the misogyny the the total gatekeeping and I'm better than you therefore like you know there's an inner circle and an inner circle and an inner circle of people who deserve to be talked to and then like the newbies that like let's not you know, yeah, let's let them absolutely. do what they're doing. And it's in every subculture in geek communities, mm-hmm. you know, like it's in the horror community and the anime community and the comic book community yeah. and the fantasy community and D&D and wow, like I played World of Warcraft a shitload mm-hmm. and like you, you like people would find out you're a girl 
and playing these things and you're in guilds and stuff. And it's either you get weirdly sexualized mm-hmm. while Another playing huge problem. the game or you you get like completely discounted. So you can be like 15 levels above somebody and they just think you're an incompetent fucking idiot who must have purchased their account. And it's it's just so infuriating. It makes you not want to venture into these communities. And I think that's so sad because Absolutely. there's so much richness in the context in the content that is created. And there are a lot of people in that community that are very kind and incredibly welcoming and understand that like you resonating with this content is likely because you relate to it in some way, in some way that's similar to the way they relate to it, that there is some sense of found family and otherness and rejection that has brought you seeking kind of friendship here. And there there are people like that that exist, but there's just the people who are assholes about it and gatekeepers and bigots are so much fucking louder. Yeah. D&D has been, on the other hand, like has been amazing for this, this guy. I don't know exactly what it is. Some of these podcasts, D&D podcasts, I definitely know have had a huge influence um, and things, but they, it's become such a massively inclusive, powerful force. Yes. But now you're risking getting into an environment where these people who do exist in the inclusive space and really do want something more segregated and really are kind of pieces of shit, but had no choice, but to play in that space are going to have this new platform now. Yeah. Like you're going to have these people going to this weird segregated bigoted space because that's what they really want out of their D and D and they hate the wokeness of it. And they're just going to get more indoctrinated. Yeah. You know what I mean? So now we're just going to rebuild that shitty ass, like indoctrination of horrible, like, bigotry into nerd culture and like do we really have we come so far that we feel the need to circle back on it like there are enough people that fucking suck that bad but had no choice to be in the inclusive community that now they're going to join this horrible bigoted segregated mess that fucking sucks Mm -hmm. did you i only had the one movie actually but did you have any other uh, media you want to talk about I mean, I did, but now we've gotten so far off topic that I'm like, I feel like it's not valuable to, to mention anymore. And we're like an hour and a half yeah. into recording and haven't talked yeah. about the main movie. Oh, I think, you know, so this I one's think, this episode's going to be what it is, you know. It's a mess is what it is. So I think I'm just going to rapid fire it because if I wait too long, yeah. like if I wait until the next time we record, I'm just like, I'm not. Um, I finally watched The Night Manager. Came out years ago. It's got Tom Hiddleston and the guy who plays House, Hugh Laurie. Mm-hmm. I got his name eventually. Um, it's also got the, okay, do you remember Tenet? Mm-hmm. The woman that we thought was absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It's She's in it, playing almost the exact same character. Woman married to abusive arms dealer, trying wow. to get out. Very precise. Literally the same character. Yeah, it's, it's a weird trope she's gotten herself into. It's a miniseries. Is it is it great? No. Is the acting amazing? Absolutely. Mm. Um, the storyline is very like I would say it's probably very male gaze and kind of misogynistic. Like the only female real female character is so one dimensional yeah. and like so much just there for plot movement. That's frustrating. And any other woman that does come into it is like a blip and again just there for like the romantic or like motivation of the main character. So it's not right <laughs> but overall like it was compelling it's it's a compelling sort of like 
mystery thriller. It's some of the best acting I've seen from Tom Hiddleston. So if you're a big Tom Hiddleston fan, I think it's valuable to watch it for that reason. And I love Hugh Laurie as a bad guy. He's he's just really good at it. Mm. Overall, very watchable. I don't think it's that good, though. Second thing I watched, Rapid Fire. I rewatched Jennifer's Body, mm-hmm. written by Diablo Cody, starring Amanda Seyfried and Megan Fox. Also has Adam Brody in it. So I figured, right. valuable segue. <laughs> I fucking love that movie. Like, mm-hmm. I love it in the same way that I loved Teeth and It Follows. Like, it's such an interesting, weird, hyper-feminist, um, genre-bending horror movie, and it worked so effectively on me. I think it has really interesting comedic elements that are super weird, which is very common for, like, Diablo Cody's writing. I do think, like many of Diablo Cody's movies... The dialogue is weird in a similar way to like Gilmore Girls, where just no one talks like that and it can mm. be a little jarring. Right. And it's the same problem I have with Juno. At just nobody, nobody interacts that way. Teenagers do not have conversations in this way. They do not use this language. And it's super weird. But overall, it's so fun and like confusingly erotic and So, like, it has such an interesting message around the female archetype in horror and thriller and teen romps. It really, like, dissects that in a similar way to Teeth, Mm -hmm. for instance, which is a very similar movie. Um, It just doesn't utilize as much of that, like, rape-revenge trope that Teeth uses, which can make it very uncomfortable to watch. Phenomenal acting from Megan Fox. And overall, this movie got so painfully shit on by critics and viewers alike, and it all comes down to terrible marketing choices Mm. from this production company that decided to market this as a sexy cheerleader horror movie. Right. And then people went to see it, and it was this, like, esoteric, feminist, like, queer erotic thriller. Mm -hmm. And like everybody, because it was marketed to like male audiences ages 18 to like 40, they were pissed. Yeah. They were so angry because it wasn't like this hot, violent mess of a movie. It was like a good for her woman getting back at all of the terrible, shitty, misogynistic men who come after her and treat her like prey. It was fucking cool and fun and so different from anything that came out around that time. And it just got decimated. And I highly recommend if you saw it for the first time and completely discounted it when it originally came out and got on the like hate train of all the other men in your life who said it was terrible to rewatch it because it is a phenomenal movie. It's so fun and has great rewatchability. And if you liked promising young woman this movie walked so promising young woman could run like it wouldn't exist if this movie didn't happen first Mm -hmm. for that movie and i just i think it's worth watching because i even felt prey to that like i watched that for the first time when i was 18 with my boyfriend and he shit all over it after it was done even though i thought it was good and i was like oh i guess it wasn't as good and i'm just stupid because i was 18 and i was a fucking idiot Mm -hmm. turns out it's amazing Everyone go watch it. It's amazing. Men suck. Rewatch the movie. Yep. Now on to another Adam Brody treasure. <laughs> yes. So 
we watched The Kid Detective, starring Adam Brody. Yeah. And uh, and basically no one else. Yeah. No one really famous is in it other than him. We were so excited that it was um, filmed in Ontario, was like, you know, uh, supported by Ontario and produced in conjunction with Crave, which is our big HBO vehicle uh, streaming service up here. So more Canadiana for you. We didn't even know going into this one. No, filmed in North Bay, Ontario. Mm-hmm. Which is just a, like a small city, like big town, small city sort of uh, area yeah. in Ontario that people know about, but is not particularly known for anything. So it's a good choice for like a yeah. small town. I think it's an old mining town. Mm. I think I think yeah. like Sudbury, it was a mining uh, most town. things in Northern Ontario are that. Uh, yeah. yeah, pretty much all mining towns. And it was directed by Evan Morgan, but he's he's mostly known for writing. I think this might be his directorial debut. Oh, cool. And he it looks like he's directed a couple of music videos. I thought the movie was good. I thought the movie accomplished it's sort of like what it seemed to be setting out to do and like put the factors together to make that happen. I thought I just felt very satisfied. I'm like, OK, I get what you're trying to do and you're doing it. So awesome. Essentially, uh, Adam Brody when he was a kid, was a kid detective. And he's exactly like your Encyclopedia Brown, Hardy Boys. Um, who else are the Nancy Drew? But, you know. Nancy Drew, um, Harriet the Spy. Yeah. And he was just good at it. In his town, he solved, like, you know, as he says many times in the movie, 200 cases closed, um, right? These small yeah. town crimes. And they're all, like, cute little, like, kid things yeah. that aren't, most of them aren't real crimes. The couple of them that are, are, like, barely misdemeanors like it's like vandalism or like you know $50 theft that kind of thing and then he gets a case to solve an actual really hard mystery in the town which is uh, a girl's been kidnapped Gracie and he racks his brain and puts together you know the full conspiracy theory chart trying to do this as a kid he's around probably 14 by this uh, time it's not even so much that he gets this case it's that because he's known as like the kid detective in the town and he was friends with this girl who's kidnapped he sort of puts that pressure on himself Mm -hmm. that he has to be the one to solve it and the other kids want him to be the one to solve it but like the police officers at the time don't put that responsibility on him the mayor at the time don't put like they don't put that responsibility on him they won't even call him back to give him details about the case because he's a 14-year-old child and he shouldn't be involved in it. It's so much darker than any of the things that he ever needed to be involved in. But because he felt responsible for the town and because he felt, you know, so successful as this detective, he ends up carrying the weight of everything on himself. And it really kind of ruins him. Yeah. And so we follow him now at the sort of next beginning of the movie as he's turned 32 and has been continuing to solve minor cases in the town, but is not particularly respected for it and has not had a real case since then. Um, And really his, his awards and stuff on his wall are all just from his time as a kid detective. You know, he's waking up disheveled. It really is lost in life, but Mm -hmm. feels so dedicated to his craft still. So that's where we start. What did you? Uh, yeah, I mean, about it. so I mean, I I did really enjoy it. I feel like this really was written by and directed by somebody 
who truly loved that genre like of kid fiction when they were young like it really felt like it came some from somebody who loved like the kid mysteries and stuff the hardy boys and the nancy drews and stuff like that um so in a lot of ways like even even if it's not perfect even if there are a lot of like two-dimensional kind of characters throughout it it did really feel like this was a world that was crafted by somebody who loves that kind of genre because even absolutely even though it's it's set in modern times he did a lot to sort of place it in the time period that i imagine evan morgan would have grown up in when he was like reading these stories and when a lot of these stories were set you know so many of them like babysitter's club and harriet the spy and and stuff were set in the 80s and 90s when we were kids when we were growing up um and that's that's the feel of a lot of the set design Mm -hmm. so even though people have cell phones they have modern computers everyone's driving like these old like 80s 90s cars most of the furnishings feel very like antiquated everybody's got corded phones in their houses so it really feels like he wanted to give you this clear aesthetic of something that he loved very, very much as a kid and then what the world could do to a child like that that has so much expectation and promise on their shoulders. Yeah. I also liked, well, I'll say this first, that the general theme I felt, especially for the first half of the movie, is about sort of arrested development, immaturity, and this difficulty he was having finding the next stage in life because is he a detective? Like, no, he never became a cop or anything like this. He's solving cases, but solving cases as a kid is very different than solving cases as an adult. But he is, you see right away after like a dinner table conversation that he 100% believes that this is his life calling and this is what he's meant to do. He just hasn't caught a break. So now he's he's being given another murder case. The previous one was a kidnapping, but this one's now a murder case. But a legitimate crime. Yeah that he's going to solve. So he's going to do it pro bono and go and actually solve this thing and see what if his skills are up to par, like what his purpose is in, in life. And that, yeah. I, I very much felt the relatability of that being 32 myself and feeling this sense of by 30, you really feel like you have to have something going on, have, I understood this pressure of him that giving this up now, especially now that you've had so much sunk cost in it. It's like, what are you going to do now? You have no other skills. You have nothing yeah. else you've been up to. This is what you're famous for. It's it's a very tough spot to be in to begin with. And so you see why he is the way he is. I think I agree with you. But I think also like the first two acts of this movie feel very ego driven. Absolutely. You know, he's like, I must prove that I am as good as everyone said I was as a child and as I believe I am today. I am like. I used to stay awake thinking I was the smartest person in the town. I am. I am the best person to solve this case. The police are bumbling idiots. Every time he finds a clue that they missed, he's like fucking typical. Of course I'm ahead of them. It's all of this like he he's not. It's I mean, he does want to prove himself to the town and he wants that, you know, veneration and respect, of course. But I think it's it's also he wants to prove that he's better than oh absolutely this is by far the, the number one thing going on in his mind. I think it's a very toxic internal monologue he's made for himself, and I think it was done well. But I think I think that's what makes it the final twenty minutes of this movie so compelling to me. Mm-hmm. The ending is what like even though I enjoyed the ride, the ending is what cinched this as like a truly good movie for me. 
I agree. Because he gets to the end, and I won't spoil anything, but he ends up solving his case, is confronted by something I think so, so much darker than he ever expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he ends up solving both of the hardest cases he's ever been confronted with in one shot. And the whole movie turns around to me and becomes this like lesson of like fracturing personality and delayed response to grief. Mm-hmm. And like, even though he gets everything he wanted, he gets the respect. People do think he's smart. He even gets the respect of his family who thought he was a loser up until this point. And he cannot handle it. Mm-hmm. He has a, a house. He he feels like a real adult. And he just shatters emotionally. And I feel like that is like the real heart of the movie to me. Absolutely. Is the fact that this child was faced with something so traumatic and had such high expectations for himself, couldn't meet them, and then felt like he failed everyone else. So then he forced himself into failure and ended up being a washed up loser that everyone was embarrassed to be around. But in his brain, they weren't embarrassed to be around him because he had given up on himself. They were embarrassed to be around him. They weren't embarrassed to be around him because he had failed in this case and they all expected him to be a, be the one, this 14 year old kid to solve a fucking kidnapping. They were embarrassed to be around him because he was just like a loser borderline couch surfing half the time and kept and keeps getting into fucking bar fights. Like, and he, now he has to confront the fact that like the majority of his failings are because of this like huge trauma that he put on himself that he never confronted when he was a child. And he has to do it 20 years later as an adult. Like that's horrifying. Yeah. I remember the scene with the, um, Tim talking to the police uh, chief of the town now who used to be, it was, it was his consultant when he was a kid detective too. And just, it wasn't anything they said in particular, but I just thought like, you know, why didn't the police get him involved when he was 14? And it's so obvious because they didn't want to, you know, put this pressure on him, but he still took that upon himself. And when he makes fun of the cops and one of the cops have so many ways they have to be so responsible for what they're doing. They have to get warrants. They have to, it's so much about the bureaucracy of actually doing the job. As a kid, you want, you want the, the flash, the bang, the just being smart, the being a house, being with Sherlock Holmes. And he can pretend to have that dream and, and, and that he continue that life like that. But you see that isn't how the world works. And the shenan like the shenanigans, I'm saying the, this purposely childish word about it, that he gets into to solve this case. You see how absolutely nonsensical it actually is to do and illegal and problematic and every other layer of immature and whether or not he's smarter than the other people or not. I mean, that's, I think the show or the movie puts it in a nice question that it's like, he's sometimes pretty smart and oftentimes not very smart. So like, what does it even matter how smart he is really in terms of, he's not played to be a genius Sherlock Holmes type, like that much we can get behind that in the end, he's not that he's way smarter than everyone else. So if you're not that, how stupid is doing all this private detective work and thinking you're going to solve a case that the the cops haven't been able to solve, right? Like it's this ridiculousness of his own momentum. And yeah, it just, it feels so like the ro- pragmatism and romantic, the romantic aspects of it have just collided into this horribly depressing stage he's found himself in now. 
But I completely agree with you. It's the ending that really puts it all together. This delayed grief um, and what was lost during this yeah. whole time that really makes the movie worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's also the the confrontation moment where he has to realize that as a child, he was easily manipulated. So while he might have been very good at a lo- at solving these like small, cute little crimes and stuff, he was still a little boy. You know, he was still like this child that could be swayed in a direction. And when a crime like this happens, that's so dark and so heartbreaking. There was no chance for him to divide himself from that because he he knew the victim that was kidnapped as a child as when he was a child. It was one of his very close friends. He can't be pragmatic about it. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes this like weird pressure that he put on himself where he has to be the one to solve it because he's the only one who can. He's so smart. The town's depending on him, but also the avoidance and procrastination of a little boy who's afraid and, and can't deal with the emotions that he's being confronted with. So that's how he ends up in this state of arrested development. So when you get to the end, it's him confronting how to be an adult, but everything changes so rapidly. And he basically has to go through this like grieving and aging process that should have been expanded over that 20 year period, but it couldn't have been because he's just been avoiding and procrastinating like a little boy. And it is very heartbreaking. Yeah. For me too, I had a general sense that this relates so much to millennials as a generation and Adam Brody is obviously at the the very tail end of that uh, that age range. Although we had this yeah, whole a discussion, big shocking about this. moment for you. Yes, I could not believe that he's forty. <laughs> he, t- I mean, I, oh, I no, see- no, no, he's not forty. He is forty three. No, forty three or forty four. This is another layer of. I he's cannot- born in seventy nine. He's born in seventy nine. He's forty three. Yeah, forty four. Yeah, yeah. seventy nine would be forty two or forty three. I think. Yeah, so he's probably forty three this year. I, yeah, just, oof. I, I mean, good on him. He, to me, he looks 32. Like I could imagine him being a bit older, but 42 is just like not many 42 year olds look like that. Like he. Yeah. I, it just made me laugh how like your refusal to accept mm-hmm. that he was in his forties. Cause I'm like, he was, he was playing a 17 year old when we were like 12, 13. He, he yeah, I fundamentally that couldn't be our age For me, regardless. the OC, I only started watching when I was like 18. So like it, it wasn't as drastic. Yeah. So you, I mean, same. I didn't, I didn't watch it when I was in like um, elementary or high school. I watched it after it had finished. So it's, I get that it's a little jarring, but like I remember when Rooney, the band that was heavily featured in that TV show was popular. And that was when I was 14 years old. Mm. I listened to Rooney, their first album when it came out and I was 13. So, like, that's how I can age place him. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it, it reminds me of this feeling that as a generation it feels there, too, that it is such a common thing that's talked about in our generation, this sense in which our careers start later, our especially the ability to get a house is crazy later. So all these standard milestones feel so impossible for what they were in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, like, for our parents to get. Um, and that makes everything, and I don't know what it is, but like, like just the general look and feel like when I see pictures of my parents or their friends or whatever, when they were 30 and like how responsible and starting a family, they already looked like their haircuts, their, their looks and feels, and just like oh, so yeah. few people my age seem that same way. 
Um, there are some people. I know. And not, but it's like just on average, there's a sense in which we're much more. It's just um, the 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 movie felt connected to that generational gap thing, too, even though it's never explicitly yeah, sure. a theme. Absolutely. I mean, it's definitely, you know, I mean, it feels like a movie created by a millennial for a millennial audience, mm. especially because it's hearkening back to these pieces of media that we loved so much in the 80s and 90s. And then you have a character that was so popular in the early 2000s, like the actor was so popular in the early 2000s, and he's the central piece. And you don't really see that many adult adults beyond him. I mean, you have his assistant at the office who really could be anywhere from like 20 to 30. It's very hard to age place her. The person who hired him is a 16-year-old. Um, and the only people that you interact with that are older are a couple key members of his family mm-hmm. that he feels very judged by and mocked by for not being at their level of adulthood, for not being married or owning a house or having a career. All of these things that we struggle with on a daily basis when we go to like the family picnic or for like a birthday party of your aunts or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it really felt like we were the target audience for this. and. How much curb appeal is that going to have overall for everybody to watch it? Maybe not a ton, but if you're in your 20s to like mid to late 30s, you're probably really going to enjoy this, at least as as something like really fun and entertaining and relatable. Mm-hmm. The uh, the soundtrack, including the settings and whatnot too, they did a really good job at making you feel this sense of weird like, we're solving uh, a fun mystery sort of stuff, like with a little bit of throwback to like detective stories and noir and stuff like that, but not dark. And so you're in the sense yeah. in which we're still solving really just peppy mysteries. Like, let's just get through it, you know? Yeah, it's very, it's very Scooby-Doo music, yeah. very like Babysitter's Club kind of music from like the cute TV shows you watch as a kid about solving mysteries. And then it takes a a hard left turn. And you'd think it would be dark all the way through because he is solving a murder, but it's not. Like, it's very, like, Dirk Gently's holistic detective mm. agency, cute and fun and, like, interesting and a little sad. Um, and then you get to the third act and it's just like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. He's solving a murder the whole time and you're so far disconnected from the reality of that. And I think that brings you back to, like, the root childishness of this character that like even even though he put this pressure on himself to find this girl when he was a child he's so far removed from the adult implications of how dark that really is and then when he finally solves this murder and has to confront the situation of what happened it is so dark it's in, it's so weird it's such a tonal shift yeah. right at the end And I think that's really cool. And it might be a little jarring. It might take people out of it. I could understand if people didn't like that hard, like that sharp left turn. But it worked so effectively for me because it really felt like this this adult character so disconnected from what adulthood is, finally having to like have the emotional confrontation with what everything means. Mm -hmm. And like that really worked for me. Yeah. I do want to say after all those praise and whatnot, the movie isn't perfect. There are, especially in the middle, I found it just as a structure. Yeah. As a structure, as a plot structure, as things, it, 
It doesn't feel like as powerful as it could be in places. It feels like stagnant in some places. You know, it's hard to say. It's not any particular thing. There's no particular act or anything like that I didn't feel worked out. But there's just a quality overall feeling that feels 8.5 out of 10. It's just never going to reach those upper echelons. But, that, you know, that's a, that's okay. It's it's excellent for what it is. I think if they had brought in a, a few elements of that darkness a little bit sooner, it probably would have helped with the pacing issue that I found right when we got to the middle. Because so much of it is just like a really long episode of the Hardy Boys. Mm. And then you get hit with that really intense emotional confrontation. I think that was incredibly effective. But when you don't really address much of the darkness until that point it does feel like just a really long-winded Goosebumps episode after a while. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it's just like you're watching a Scooby-Doo movie, but it's not quite as funny. Um, so I think I think either you needed to pump up some of that, like, dark comedy kind of vibe a little bit more, or you needed to bring some of the emotional, kind of impactful moments into the second act, and that probably would have helped with your pacing. I also think your secondary characters were a little underdeveloped. So you're spending so much time with this main character. Yep. And like the 16 year old girl who should be like the co-star of the film is like very, very underdeveloped. Yeah. That kind of hurt it too. Um, I still think it was a really great fun movie. I just, there are some elements that they could have developed a little more that would have made it more lasting entertainment. The depth of her character, too, is just, especially for where her plot goes, I think so mm-hmm. underused. Like, she's really I not, I'll just go with, she wasn't relatable to me. I don't see, like, that much depth to what's going on in her thing, even though there actually was a lot of opportunity to bring that depth in. Yeah, I mean, she's a plot device. I feel like everybody that isn't Adam Brody's character in this movie is is yeah, just basically. really a plot device. Um, and I mean... Fine, I guess, but there's only so much movie one singular character can carry. Um, so, I mean, I feel like they needed to build on somebody, and she really was the perfect opportunity, especially for the like real climax at the end of the movie and, and the resultant information that comes out of that. Um, and there were certain mo- moments in the movie where we noticed strange things about her home and and her mm-hmm. story that they really could have punched up more, which would have made that end information that we find out a lot more impactful. I also think it reminded me, weirdly, I don't remember the movie well, but I definitely got vibes similar. The movie called Brick, if you've seen it, about drug dealing and weirdness. It's a very weird... Um, I don't think so. It's a weird indie movie where it's like high school drug movement, but they talk in this crazy lingo, not unlike Clockwork Orange, how they have this really crazy okay. lingo going on. And that's part of the movie. You have to learn what each of these terms mean, and that helps you to uncover the mystery as you un- try, uh, better understand what they're talking about. Okay, It's very bizarre. It's a very bizarre movie. But there's something about that that mystery unfolding with wacky characters um, that reminds me of yeah. this. The wacky characters are a little toned down here, but... It's still in that kind of realm. Just a recommendation for people who are interested in this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, overall, The Kid Detective is very, very enjoyable watch. I had a great time. Yeah. I, I was would, super happy I, I watched it. I would recommend watching it. Yeah. And Adam Brody really is a super fun actor to watch. Like, he has a great dry humor, 
yeah. uh, that works really well in this. I think they could have amplified it a little bit more and done more with that because he is quite a funny actor. But overall, it's it's a really good movie. Yep. Agreed. You can find us on Twitter at FanslapPod and all the other social medias, you know, the usual. Uh, just search us up. and Oh, but not Facebook. I mean, yeah. who uses that anymore? But not Facebook. Thanks for listening. Hope you had a good time. Don't remember other lines. <laughs> that was that was pretty much it. You you got it. Thanks for listening. I hope you listen to our next episode. Um, and you know, we'll talk to you. Later. Oh, we'd love to hear from <laughs> you. That's usually what we say. Something like that too. But yeah, I'm I'm giving up. Nobody's talking to me. <sighs> Nobody wants to message me on Twitter. Nobody wants to talk to me. I'm just gonna be like super self deprecating about it now. Whatever. Bye. Okay. You guys don't like me. <laughs> Bye. <sighs> it's going to be a long one. <laughs> it's going to be so fun to edit. <laughs>